Well, this is the third week um, in a series that we are calling The Practice. And so before I dive into all of this, if you've missed the past two weeks, what I want to do real quick is just do a quick highlight, a quick overview of everything that we've covered in the past two weeks. And the reason that I wanted to do this series is, is two reasons. Number one, I know that summer is busy and people are on vacations and got Little League games and all that kind of stuff and everybody's going all over the place. And I think in that busyness sometimes, we forget um, what it's like to truly have a genuine authentic relationship with Jesus just because we get so busy in the hustle and bustle and busyness of life. And so I just wanted to take a few moments and step back in the next few weeks and talk about, man, what does it look like to not just claim to be a Christian, but to actually be somebody that practices Christianity. So in week one, what we talked about, the first essential of being a Christian, the very foundational first thing that we've got to get under wraps is simply this. We have got to learn to fall in love with Jesus every single day. In Revelations, it talks about when, when Paul comes in, I mean, sorry, when John comes into the church and he says, listen, I'm so proud of all the things that you guys have done for Jesus. I'm so pleased to see that, man, you're reaching people for Jesus. You're feeding the homeless. You're reaching out to people. Your church is doing all kinds of great things. But he goes, I have this one thing against you. He says this, you're doing all these great things in God's name, but you have forgotten to fall in love with Jesus. And he goes on to talk about these different things that we talked about in week one. And we said this, if we're not learning to fall in love with Jesus, but we still want to ride underneath the mantra of being a Christian. We usually do four things. If we're not falling in love with Jesus, we do four things. And we talked about these four things. Number one, you start faking it. You start faking, yes, I, I want to live out the Christian life, but I know it's going to take a lot of work for me to practice it out. So you know what? I'm just going to go in. I'm going to fake. I'm going to kind of fake it till I make it. I'm going to kind of make everybody believe. And I don't think we say this out loud, but it's just kind of the process that we go through in our head. We genuinely believe when we walk in these doors and people ask us, how are we doing? We're like, oh, it's great. And then you walk out of these doors and it's not great. So it's usually the first step. We start faking it. We want everybody else to believe that life is going smooth, that life is going great. And the truth is, it's not. In Jeremiah 6, 14, you can look at, oh, there is no screen behind me, so never mind. It's why you should bring your Bibles, okay? Um, or your phone. Jeremiah 6:14 says, "They dress the wound of my people as though it was not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace." So, so what is he? What is he getting at? He's saying a lot of Christians get used to this, these cliche terms, these mantras. The, yes, I have peace, and yes, I can walk into community, and everything is great, and life is well. But he says, you walk out of these doors, and the wounds are still bleeding all over the place. There really is no peace. So we fake it. If we get to that faking point, we move on to stage two, where we, stage two is we start to put it off. Yeah, I know I have an issue. I know I'm dealing with something, but I don't really want to deal with it. And the longer that you put it off, you, you buy into the lie that time heals things. When the truth is, time doesn't heal anything. It only makes it a lot worse, right? Time usually allows space for bitterness. It allows space for arrogance. It allows space for friends to be separated or spouses to go their own way. Time really doesn't heal anything. What we learned is the Holy Spirit is the only person that heals anything, not time. And then you move to stage three, and stage three is ultimately you give up. So this is how affairs happen. This is how um, people fall into things that they never thought that they would fall into. You just give up. You just go, you know what? I've been faking it for long enough. I've been putting it off for long enough. And you know what? I just, I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. And we, we, we give up. Stage four, you move into you die. 
So ultimately, that means it could be a physical death. Maybe you just give up on life altogether, or it's a spiritual death. And I think most often in Christianity, it's a spiritual death. Where, yes, I know Christianity, I know a relationship with Jesus is something that I need, but you know what? I just feel so dead. And we talked about being in the doldrums. The doldrums is a technical term for it's, a, it's actually a place in the ocean where there is no wind. <laughs> so back in the, the old days before motors, if you got stuck there in a boat, like you weren't getting out. You weren't paddling 500 miles to where there was wind. You were going to die in there. And so a lot of people in Christianity, they feel like they're stuck. I feel like I'm stuck in the doldrums. There's no wind. There's no fresh air. There's nothing going on. You die. And the only way, the only way to get out of this place where you're faking it, you're putting it off, you're giving it up, and you feel like you're dying, the only way to do that is to every single day return back to that first love that captured you in the very beginning, and it's falling in love with Jesus all over again. And I know this sounds so basic, but the truth is the reason that so many Christians are so miserable is because they have forgotten this. When I was in Austin, um, my wife (laughs) convinced me to go on a run. For those of you that know my wife, she's a runner and she's pregnant right now and she's still running all the time. And for a good while, I had a good streak of running. And then, you know, like anybody else, you're like, I don't need to run anymore. I'm fit enough, you know. And uh, she convinced me to go run. And uh, as we're running through Austin and we're running in, along the Colorado River, which is not, I have learned, Louisiana, I'm just telling you, I love Louisiana, but our water is terrible, okay? Like, if you grew up going to Holly Beach as a kid, like, you were missing out on life. Seriously, that beach is disgusting compared to the waters in Austin. And as we're, we're rolling, it's not like anything. Like, in Louisiana, you're running by a river, and you're like, what is that smell? Something died right here. And when we're running in Austin, man, it's just so beautiful. There's so many hills. The water is clear. I can actually see the bottom. (laughs) I can see what I'm swimming with. Um, And we're running along these things, and I'm listening to this music, and there's just this thing that keeps playing over and over in my head, other than my heart about to beat out of my chest. (laughs) But it's just like, man, I'm, I'm so fascinated by God's creation. I'm so fascinated that God took the time to create such detail that it would captivate me. And in that moment, what, in those moments, it's like, man, I need to return back to that first love. And so I want to ask you this simple question. What are we doing on a daily basis to stir our affections to fall back in love with Jesus? You remember when you were first dating your spouse, or your husband, or your wife? And, man, everything was awesome, <laughs> It was like they could do no wrong. It was like everything that they did was perfect and everything was great. Jesus is saying, I want you to return back to that. And then last week we talked about if we are going to stay in love with Jesus, then we have to do one essential thing. And then we have to learn to practice fighting every single day. So that means, man, your relationship, your pursuit of Christ is going to be a fight. Every single day, you're going to have to wake up to make a choice. Do I want to pursue Jesus today or do I want to do my own thing? It's not just going to be something that naturally happens. We talked about one of the points that I used was nobody wakes up one morning closer to Jesus than they were the next. So you, you will never drift towards holiness. You will always drift towards lust and anger and self-gratification. Those are the things that you naturally gravitate towards. So if we want to have a personal intimate relationship with Jesus, we have to practice remaining in Christ. In John 15, 4, it says this, remain in me 
and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. So what is he saying in this? He's saying, man, if you remain in Christ, then you're going to produce fruit. If you stay with Jesus every single day that you're carving out time. And listen, there's going to be days that you're going to wake up and that's the last thing that you want to do. Can I just be real honest with you? There has been days and months and weeks and even years in my life where the last thing I want to do is pursue Jesus. Like, God, I just want to stay here in this moment. I just want to watch Netflix. I just, want to do, I just don't want to do anything. And you're going to have moments like that. But the truth is, as a Christian, we are defined not by the circumstances that we go through, but we're defined by how we choose to fight in the middle of those circumstances. And that's ultimately what defines us. So we talked about first week, practice choosing, choosing to fall back in love with Jesus. The second week, we've got to practice fighting. And this week, I want to talk about we need to practice becoming like Jesus. What does it look to become like Jesus. Before I dive into this, let's pray one more time. Father God, I pray that you would open our ears. God, I pray that this would not just be another message. It would not just be another service or sermon. But God, I pray that you would reach down into the depths of our hearts, God, and you would begin to stir our affections for you. God, I pray whatever is clouding our thoughts, whatever is clouding our vision, whatever is clouding our hearing, God, whatever things that we're thinking about, God, whether it's finances, whether it's relationships, whether it's our job, God, I just pray for just a brief moment, God, that we would focus on you. God, that we would give you our full attention so that you could speak to us in a way that we desperately need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So the ultimate goal of a Christian is to become like Jesus. It's the ultimate goal. This is the process that we call sanctification, that every single day that you're supposed to look a little bit more like Jesus. Now, the truth is, it's extremely hard to become like Jesus if we really don't know what our meaning and our purpose here in life is. And I don't know about you, but every single human being on the face of the planet is searching and looking for meaning. We're always trying to find something to fulfill our lives, to make a difference in this world. Nobody woke up out of bed in the morning and said, you know what? I just want my life to do nothing. <laughs> I want my life to be as purposeless as possible. There is this small twinge that every single human being on this planet has felt like, I feel like I'm made for something great. I feel like I'm made and I'm put on this planet to do something. And the truth is, where do we find meaning in life? A lot of us are searching and looking for it in, in a million different places. But the truth is we can never become like Jesus unless we truly find our identity in Christ. And, and unless we look at our relationship with Jesus and we say, this is what gives me purpose. This is what gives me meaning. But I think a, a question that we ask, if we're honest with ourselves most of the time, is what is my purpose here on earth? Or why am I here? Or what is the point of life? How many, let's just brutal, honest, show of hands, how many of you have ever asked that question? Why am I here? What is my purpose here on this life? And I think sometimes as Christians, we have been discouraged from asking these particular questions. Well, you're a Christian, you love Jesus, you should know your purpose. And you're, man, you've been serving Jesus for five, ten years, and you're like, I, I don't. Well, find comfort in this. Do you know that they're the wisest man and all of the earth, the richest man in all of the earth, asks the very same questions. 
God, what is my purpose here on this earth? And his name was King Solomon. King Solomon dealt with these questions of why am I here or what is my purpose? The question is really this, what are you looking to in your life to find meaning? Where do you find meaning in your life? Do you find meaning in work? Do you find meaning in pleasure? Do you find meaning in family, shopping, hobbies, beauty, or maybe how smart you are or what kind of talents you have? A better way to put it is, what are you counting on in your life to make your life worth living? And here's the truth. Here's what I've learned. Some of us count on our giftings to make our life worth living. So maybe you're smart. Maybe God gave you a brilliant mind and you can just think things real quick and you got good ideas and maybe you're good at math or maybe you're good at a certain skill and you say, man, if God took this away from me, what would I be? The truth is, man, if you're a businessman in here, if you didn't have the mind to create business, what would you be? If you're a mom in here and you find your identity in your children, if you weren't a mom, who would you be? I have to ask myself this question all the time, man, if I wasn't a pastor and if I didn't have some of the giftings that I did, who would I be? Underneath it all, if we were to strip away your talents, your giftings, the things that you find your identity in and you place your security in, maybe it's your bank account, maybe it's your finances, if we took all that away, where would you find meaning or purpose? And if all that was taken away, could you honestly say that you would still have meaning and purpose in this life? You know, I've been able to, the past week I've, I've sat with um, a family this week many of you guys know miss linda who passed away um, i believe on saturday but um actually sunday right after uh tr- right before church i got a text message from one of our girls here saying hey miss linda's on her way to the hospital and um, this whole past week we've been back and forth at the hospital grieving with the family sitting down reliving the stories about an incredible woman when we actually started osc crowley miss linda was actually one of the first people that served in osc kids and i was instrumental in getting our department kicked off and honestly we couldn't have done it without her and uh, actually saturday this past saturday she went home to be with the lord and you look at that as you're grieving with a family and the one thing that they all talk about that I notice is nobody was talking about, man, how much money did she leave behind? Nobody's saying, hey, can I have her car? Or who gets her house? Or Nobody's talking about any of that. The one thing that we're doing as I'm grieving and crying with people in the hospital room is simply this, man, do you remember when she said this? Do you remember she was the most hard-headed Cajun woman ever? She was. <laughs> Miss Linda, two weeks ago, this is not a joke, two weeks ago, she loved coming to this church. Two weeks ago, she, was dra- she had an oxygen tank right behind her, and she's walking in the doors coming to church. So if you have an excuse not to be here, you need to talk to her. <laughs> she's dragging her oxygen tank, barely breathing, sitting in the service, listening to a sermon. She loved Jesus. And the one thing that I'm captivated by this woman over and over and sitting with her family was simply this. At the very bitter ends of life, you begin to realize where people find meaning. It's not in their job, it's not in their money, it's not in the things that they hold in possession and the things that they think will give them happiness. In the end, it's only really one thing. It's your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with the people that you surround yourself with. Those are the only things that matter in this life. And so Solomon is going to go into this thing in a moment, and we're going to read it in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 in a minute. But he's going to ask loads of questions. Chapter 1 is Solomon just ranting. If you've ever felt like, man, I just need to sit down, me and God, and I just need to rant. I need to tell God how I really feel right now. Solomon did that. That is Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He just let God have it. He just 
threw it all out there. God, what is the purpose of this? There's death, there's pain, there's suffering. What is the meaning to life? But here's the truth. A lot of us claim Jesus as Lord. Maybe I'm asking you this question today and you say, well, the meaning of life is obviously Jesus. Is it really, though? Is it really when we look at our lives, the core of who we really are, is that what we're actually living for? Or are we living for our bank accounts? Are we living for our education, our personal wisdom? Are we living for whatever we can attain here in this life? And the truth is, a lot of us, rather than looking to Jesus, we look to a thousand other functional saviors. Meaning this. We genuinely believe that once that blank is filled in, that we'll be happy. Okay, so once I have the job that I want, I'll be happy, God. Just give me this job, and I promise you I'll be satisfied, and I'll stop crying out in agony to you to answer this prayer. Or, or, or maybe, if man, if this blank is filled in, God, if, I could just, if my bank account could just be in the positive, I would be so happy right now. If I could just have this house, if I could just have this car, if I could just have this ideal relationship. And the truth is, once you get that blank finally filled in, if you're not careful, there's another one that happens. And so what ends up happening is we turn to a thousand other functional saviors than Jesus, meaning that we're looking in our salvation and the possessions that we can attain and earn. And once I get those blanks filled in, then I'll have meaning, then I'll have purpose. And maybe it's not in possessions. You, you could say, man, if I could just have this kind of marriage, then I'll be happy. Maybe you look at a marriage, man, if my husband could just treat me that way, or if my wife could just serve me or treat me that way, then we would be happy. And the truth is, the grass is never greener on the other side. It never is. The only thing that we can turn to to find meaning here in this life, and the only thing that we can hold on to that has an everlasting shelf life is our relationship with Jesus. See, a thousand different functional saviors, it's like a canned good that sits on a shelf and expires in five years. So man, maybe you, you, you've experienced this before. Maybe you get that new car that you finally wanted. Like, I got this car. It's so awesome. And then 10 years later, you drive over the Baton Rouge Bridge and you look to the right and you see the, the car graveyard where every car eventually gets smashed, right? And that car that we worked for and that we paid an ungodly amount of money for ends up going into a dump. That shirt that you wanted so badly will one day be at Goodwill being bought for $2 and you spent 60 bucks on it, right? The truth is, we have two choices to make today. We can look to a thousand different functional saviors to find our happiness and find our meaning, or we can look to Christ and say, God, help me find my meaning and my joy and my purpose in you. The truth is, a lot of us spend our lives trying to secure something that Jesus has already secured for you and me. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is going to ask the question that the rest of the Bible is going to answer. The thing that I love about Solomon and the way that he writes Ecclesiastes, the entire book is one gigantic question that never resolves. I love it. It's just him asking a ton of questions, and then you have to read the rest of the Bible to really get the answers. But in Ecclesiastes 1... Solomon is going to go on a rant, and one of the lines that he's going to say over and over and over again is this, vanity, life is meaningless, all is meaningless. And then he says, what does man gain by all the toil? What does he mean? So what is Solomon saying? Should we all just give up and die because this life is not worth living at all? No. What Solomon is saying, outside of Christ, there really is no meaning that can ever be attained. 
outside of a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus, there is no meaning that could ever be attained here in this life. Let me tell you why. Because the Bible tells one story in three different parts. Number one, God made all things good. This is Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two. God created the world and everything in it, and it was perfect, absolutely perfect. And the second story that the Bible tells is we human beings enter the world. We're like, hey, God's perfect, but I'm here to break it. That's <laughs> what we do. God created everything perfect. Then we enter into the picture. We broke it. Sin enters in. And in the third part of the Bible is through Jesus, God cleans up our mess. So because of this, an old French philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal, he coined this famous term, and he simply said this. The reason that we this deep void in our life is because at the very beginning in Genesis, we were made perfect, whole, and complete, and we knew what it was like to be in complete sync with God. But when sin entered in the world, it fractured something in the foundations of earth, and we're always running to try to feel that feeling again, to try to feel what we felt in the garden when we felt whole and we felt connected with God. That's why all of us are constantly searching and running to meaning. Blaise Pascal said it's the disinherited prince syndrome, meaning that we're always trying to run back to the king in his palace and be whole and be connected and be well taken care of with God the Father. But the truth is, if we don't have a relationship with God, we just innately run to certain things or we're trying to find meaning because we know that we're broken. We know that we're not whole, so we're constantly trying to run back to something where we can attain some kind of satisfaction. And here's the truth. It's not, that, it's not that people in here want to have 10 different relationships with people. It's the very fact that it's just like, man, I'm searching for somebody to love me, somebody to give me purpose. I'm, find, I'm trying to find that purpose that can give me, I'm trying to find that person that can give me purpose and meaning. And what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is life is vanity, life is meaningless, life is purposeless. He's saying this, you can work your fingers to the bone to attain everything that you can possibly attain, but if you don't have Jesus, what is it for? What is it for? All of our work, all of our striving will one day cease, and the only thing that will last will be your relationship with Jesus. It'll be the only thing that lasts. You know, in the very final moments of Miss Linda's life, I got to put my hand on her, and we, we prayed for her, and there's probably like 20 people crammed into this ICU, ICU room that, that doctors shouldn't have let us, but they knew it was final moments of her life. And a husband, who she's been married to for 33 years, um, looks at me, and he said, you know what, this morning, he said, everybody was out, and I was in the room by myself with my wife and just praying, talking to God. And he said, for the first time in my life, he said, I had a real encounter with Jesus. And and you stop in that moment, and you begin to realize one thing. Even God can use the most painful things in life to turn people to himself. Because even God knows in the very last bitter ends of life, that the only thing that matters is a relationship with him. You know, when I was talking to Mr. James, I, I, man, there was never a single word mentioned about a car, about a house, about possessions, about how much the funeral is going to cost or anything like that. It was just story after story about his wife. He told me, man, he said, we, we, he said I was 15, she was 15 and I was 16 when we got married. He 
said, I got her pregnant. My dad said, boy, you better marry that woman. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. It's just recounting all the things in life that genuinely matter. So here's what I want to make one blanket statement this morning. And it's simply this. You can have everything in this life and still have nothing if Jesus is not your everything. You can have all the riches. Like Solomon was the richest man ever to live on the face of the earth. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he says life is meaningless. This was a phase in Solomon's life where he's experimenting. He's just, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like my heart wants to do to find purpose and meaning. And so this is where we pick it up in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, if you want to follow along. If you do want to follow along and you're looking at what version I'm reading, I'm reading the NLT. So keep in mind, chapter 1, Solomon is asking all these questions. What's the point of life? Life is meaningless. Life is vanity. And then he says this. This is chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. So he said, I said to myself, come, let's try pleasure. Let's look for good things in life, but I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly, what good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine, and while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of beautiful fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold. Let me hold that for you, Solomon. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. And, and for another term for that would be prostitutes. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, listen to this, Anything I wanted, I would take it. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. Like chasing the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile. Wow. So let's recap just a little bit of what we read. So Solomon, seven hundred wives. Seven hundred wives. There was some drama in that house. Three hundred prostitutes. Ultimately, he had a house that made any modern-day billionaire jealous. He had all the pleasures of this life. Solomon knew how to throw a party. You can actually read in the Old Testament that when Solomon threw a party, he actually would invite so many people over to his house that they would slaughter an entire herd of cattle to feed them. Like, 
you look out on the hills and every cow that you would see, they would kill it because that's how many people were there. It said for weeks and months on end that people would come to this house and there was as much wine as you could possibly drink, the best steak that you could bite into, beautiful men, beautiful women all over, and you could do anything that you wanted. He had servants to take care of his every need. Fill my cup. (laughs) Yes, sir. He had everything that he could possibly want. He had enough money to last him multiple lifetimes. God said that Solomon was the wealthiest, richest man on the earth, and there would never be anyone as wealthy as him. So he had more money than anybody could ever imagine. Think about it this way. Whatever he wanted, the scripture says he took it. Whatever he wanted. He wanted that wife, he took it. He wanted that possession, he took it. Whatever he wanted, he took it. And now listen to this. Even after all of his achievements, all of his possessions, all of his greatest parties, he still declares that life is meaningless. So what is he saying? Yet again, you can have everything and still have nothing if Jesus is not your everything. See, there's nothing in this world that is going to give you or no possession that is going to give you the meaning and satisfaction that you're looking for outside of relationship with Jesus. So let's think about it this way in a more practical sense. Those who spend loads of time exercising to shape and sculpt your body the way that you want it to be, is it perfect yet? No. If you, if you look at every athlete who is training for a marathon or is trying to get the, you know, six-minute, six-pack abs, what, that's a lie. Um, everyone that is trying to sculpt their body, they're, they're never satisfied. Well, yeah, tomorrow I've got to hit the gym, I've got to do this, and then, oh, man, summer's coming around, I've got to get in a bathing suit. I am not ready to get in a bathing suit, right? We're never satisfied. We've got all these things that are constantly going on in our head. Those who spend hours researching and reading to fill their mind, maybe you're just an intellectual who loves information. Have you absorbed all the information in the world yet? There's no way. And the greatest minds on the face of the earth still pale in comparison to the God of the universe. They still can't even figure out where certain planets are, and God simply stepped down and just put them into existence. Those who struggle with maybe an addiction or alcoholism, have you drowned out all of your depression in this life yet? It's not possible. Because at the end of the day, we can say the same thing that Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, that, man, I've taken all these things on in my life to try to find purpose and to try to find meaning, that I can truly say the same thing as Solomon, unless I have Jesus Nothing in this life makes sense. So if you keep finding yourself returning back to that place, going, man, why am I so unhappy? Why do I find myself yet again at this place where I feel like just things are out of order? I don't feel like things are making sense. Most likely it's because you're finding your identity in the things that you possess rather than who God is. I'll have happiness once I can dress this way. I'll have happiness once I can fit in these jeans. I'll have happiness once I can buy this car, once I can have this relationship or have this house. Or, and the list goes on and on and on and on. 
And the truth is, in the social media digital age that we live in, the endless pursuit is always endless. <laughs> it's just on and on and on it goes. And if our pursuits here on this earth are what we're living for, at the end of the day, it's a waste of time. But there is good news. So we look at Ecclesiastes and we say, dang, what is this bleak, depressing book doing in the Bible? And I think, this is just my opinion, but I think it's in the Bible to simply drive us to our knees. To remind us that if we're searching and pursuing and looking for meaning outside of Christ, we'll never find it. But the good news is this, in John 4.14 it says this, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, this is Jesus talking, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Meaning this, if man, if you tap into an authentic, real, practicing relationship with Jesus, that thirst that you have, you'll never be thirsty again because it will be found and met in Christ. Because meaning is unattainable outside of Christ. People live, people die, we save money, we spend money, we build businesses, we hand them over to the next generation. And in Ecclesiastes, God reveals to us what life is really like without him. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, wants us to realize how futile life is without Christ. So let me stop for a moment and say this. If you don't know Jesus today, and this is an invitation for you to know him, that all that searching, all that looking, all that craving, all that longing that you've been searching for and craving and looking for, you can find that in a relationship with Jesus. But as I said earlier, I think that such a bleak and depressing book like Ecclesiastes is in the Bible to remind us of one simple thing. It's simply this. We're sick and we need a Savior. So here's what I am solely convinced of today. The truth is most of us will not run to the, great to the great physician until we realize that we're desperately sick. Most of us will never realize that we need to run to Jesus until we're bleeding out all over the place. And, and so let me put it to you this way. The reason sometimes God allows the things to happen to you in your life is it's only an invitation to run to Christ. It's not because he wants to harm you. It's because sometimes we're so stubborn and the only thing that wakes us up is sorrow and tragedy. And it's not that he desires to inflict us with pain or he desires to inflict us with suffering, but sometimes the only way that we run to God is when God stirs things up in our life. So could it be that maybe God's stirring things up in your life because he's given you an opportunity to run to him today? But see, the good news yet again is if you feel this way, there's many men and women all throughout the scriptures who felt the same way. Paul in Romans 7 says this, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me continue reading in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 22 through 24. So this is Solomon after he's ranted, after he's saying, listen, there's no meaning outside of God. He picks it up here and he says this. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes the wealthy away and gives it to those who please him. This too is meaningless, like chasing 
the wind. Now he says something in here that is extremely important for us to pick up on. In verse 25 he says this, Apart from God, who can have any enjoyment? But if you notice, he said, so if I decided, in verse 24, he says, so I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food, drink, and find satisfaction in work. So what Solomon is saying, listen, here in this world, you can find things that will satisfy you. But a better way to put it would be this. If you don't surrender and submit your life wholly to Jesus, your heaven is the pleasures of this earth. Meaning this. The only enjoyment in this life is you going to be cutting into a nice steak and going, man, that was really good. Are you looking at, man, we went on a vacation and it was good, I was rested and that was great. What Solomon is saying, yes, there's pleasures in this life, but the truth is they don't feel an everlasting thirst that you have. It only quenches it for a moment. You ever notice that when you go on vacation? Man, it's so nice to be away. And then when you get back, you're like trying to plan out the next one. We just need to go back. We just need more time. And what Solomon is saying is that will be your pleasure. That will be your heaven if you don't fully submit your life to the Lord Jesus. What Jesus is saying, man, if you submit your life wholly and fully to me, he said, I will give you something, a water, where you will never feel thirsty ever again. You're not going to have to sit back and say, man, I just need another vacation to feel full. I just need another this. I just need this. I need that. He wants to quench the thirst for you. Jesus says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So I just want to challenge you with one thing. Remember, as I said in the very beginning, Blaise Pascal, the whole disinherited prince syndrome. That's who we all are. In the very beginning, we knew things were perfect. We knew things were whole. And the reason that we all keep running towards and making decisions that we regret and doing things that we never thought that we would do is we're just searching for meaning. We're searching to get back to that place of wholeness, that place of intimacy with Jesus. And I'm just here today to tell you that the only way that you're going to find that is becoming like Jesus. And the only way that you become like Jesus is rooting and planting yourself by this one thing, The only thing that gives you purpose, the only thing that gives you identity and meaning in this life is a practicing relationship with Jesus. So it means, man, you lean into community when you desperately need it. You open up when you desperately need to confess things. You know, the thing that I love about this church is we've we've been able to walk through people and celebrate the highest highs of life, but we've also been able to walk through the lowest lows and I find as Christians, a lot of times, we, like, we love to celebrate the high highs and we love to hide the low lows. Because <laughs> we want to give everybody this idea that everything is fine. And if, man, we wear the name of Christian, that everything should be great and everything should be perfect. But here's the truth. Life gets messy and things happen. And the truth is we need the body of Christ more than we think that we do. And deep down, I think, deep down, we genuinely know outside of Christ there's going to be no meaning. I think we know it. I don't think I have to sit up here today and convince you of that very thing. I think deep down in our hearts we know that true meaning is going to come from Christ. But sometimes we get so caught up in living this life that we forget that our identity and our purpose truly does come from Jesus. So I want to close with a story, and I'm not going to read it just for the sake of time, 
but most of you know the story of the prodigal son, right? You know the story, it's about a son and his, a father and a son, and a son comes to his father and he says, look, dad, I, I know that I can't leave the house until the next few years, but look, you know what, I just want to go do my own thing. Can you give me my inheritance? Give me my property, give me my money, and I just, I just want to go live my own life. I want to do my own thing. And so the father says, sure, son, we'll do that. So he gives him money, gives him the property. And it says for years that the, pro- the son goes out, and man, he has an awesome time. He spends all kinds of money. He lives life. He stays in lavish hotels. He buys anything that he could think of. Anything that his eyes see and desires, he takes it until he finds himself in a moment that he thought he would never be in. And he's lived life to the fullest. He's had fun. And here's the truth. Sin can be blindingly fun for a season. Because when you're in the middle of it and you're partying and you're having a good time and you're doing all these things that life has to offer, and if somebody came up to you in the moment of you and say, man, there's a better life than this, you're like, what do you mean? I'm having a great time. But eventually you will come to the same place that the prodigal son came to. He finds himself from living in this lavish hotel to now he's in a pigsty cleaning up pigs and eating the same food that the pigs are. And here's what I love about God the Father in this moment. He didn't say, I can't believe you, son. You went out, you did your thing. I told you not to. I told you you're going to screw up your life. There's something that happens in that moment to that prodigal son. In in the scriptures it says, in that moment he came to his senses. And when he came to his senses, he had this thought. He said, my father's servants at my father's house eat better than I do. What am I doing here? So it says he comes to his senses and he says to himself, I'm just going to go home I'm going to come to my dad and I'm going to say, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. Just take me as one of your servants. Let me live in, you know, a little shack over there and I'll clean your stables and I'll take care of your cattle and I'll do all this stuff. And here's what I love about the story. It says, as the son is walking back home, it says his father sees him in the distance a long way off and the father begins to run to him thing I love about it is he never once says, son, where have you been? What have you been doing? Where's my money? Where's the property that you sold off? He never questions him. He does three things to him immediately. He puts a ring on his finger. He clothes him with a robe and he gives sandals to his feet. And then he turns back to all of the servants and everybody over there and he said, let's throw a party. My son has returned home. Never once did he shame him. Never once did he condemn him. Never once did he ask about the past. Where have you been and what have you been doing? Now, why do I share that story? I share that story because I think that so many people fall into the trap and they fall into the lie. Well, okay, Zach, if, I, if I'm going to root myself in my identity in Christ, then I have a lot of past baggage that I need to deal with. And will God really take me? And the truth is, God taking you back is not contingent on what you've done. <laughs> It never was. It was contingent on what his son did 2,000 years ago on the cross that already paid for every single debt and every single sin that you've ever committed. 
So it's not contingent on how good you can be and how much you can clean yourself up in that moment. It completely rides on the sole fact that Jesus died for you and he loves you no matter what you've done and that's it, end of story. See, too many times we make the gospel so complicated and it frustrates me because you have so many people walking around wounded and bleeding, begging for a relationship with Jesus and then they get mixed up into religion. They say, well, for you to really have a relationship with Jesus, you need to do this, you need to say this prayer, you need to be baptized this way, you need to talk and talk. I'm like, no! Just come back to the Father. Get plugged back in. Get back on the train and God will love you through and graciously lead you into a right relationship with Jesus.